Hello, Relatively Prime listeners. Before we get to the show, just a short, short little plug for you to support the show on Patreon. If you didn't know, beyond just helping to make sure that this show actually does come out every month, if you support the show on Patreon, you could get little prizes. One of which is getting to hear extra bonus audio from each episode. If you supported this month, you would hear the full interviews that I did with the guests. And there's a lot of information that I wasn't able to put into the show that you would get to hear if you went over to patreon.com slash prime and just put in a little bit of money for each episode that comes out. There's also, you know, other prizes, some physical things that will be getting sent out soon to the backers. So if you go on there, you're going to get a little prize pretty soon. Once again, that is patreon.com slash prime and support like Edmund Harris, Charles Wallace, Elona Fashitson. I'm so sorry about mispronouncing your name. I'm so sorry. And Zhao Fan who I'm also sorry, I may have mispronounced your name. But if you want your name mispronounced by me, or if you want to hear extra audio from the amazing interview guests that I have on this show, you have to support the Patreon. So head over to patreon.com slash relprime or to relprime.com and click on the support button. Either way, I thank you so much. Also, just, you know, thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. This is Relatively Prime. Stories from the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. Cancer is truly a terrible disease. And that's something that I'm willing to bet we all know rather intimately, because I doubt that there is a single person listening right now who has not had their own lives or the lives of their nearest and dearest affected by it. I know that I have. And that's one of the reasons that I was so interested in hearing the two brilliant mathematicians you will be hearing from today talk about the work that they have been doing using mathematics to better understand how to tackle this terrible disease. So without further ado, I would like to introduce to you the very, very interesting mathematical cancer work of Jennifer Chase. I'm the managing director of Microsoft Research New England and Microsoft Research New York City. These are labs which are devoted to research in mathematics, computer science, the social sciences. But before we get to the work Jennifer has done with regard to cancer, we first have to talk about gene regulatory networks. A gene regulatory network is the set of molecular regulators in a cell which interact with each other and regulate the cell's gene expression, and it's one of the key drivers of cell differentiation. Now, if you're not a biologist, I bet that made about as much sense to you as it did to me the first time that I read it. So let's let Jennifer give us an example. It all starts with a cell that has a protein which is sitting in its membrane when a neuron fires. What happens is that that will attach to the protein that's sitting in the membrane, and it will set off a cascade within the cell. So that will interact with another protein, which will interact with another protein, and you get things which look like cascades. But then 
the result of part of that cascade could be a protein which then goes and sits on DNA and tells that DNA to produce more or less of some other protein. The collection of all those interactions, those cascades, are what make up the gene regulatory network. And if you just take a few seconds to think about how mathematics makes its way into this, I bet you can figure it out. Just focus on that third word. That's right. Good job. You totally got it right. Networks. We can create network models of these interactions and then study how proteins are tied together by the interaction cascades. It's a directed network. In fact, it's pretty complicated because it also has a temporal component to it, which we often don't model in the, in the crudest models. So we're not capturing all aspects of the network, but we're capturing part of it by saying that the proteins themselves or the underlying genes, which are transcribed to those proteins, are the vertices, the nodes of that network, and the interactions between proteins are the edges of that network. As Jennifer says, these networks are complicated. And not just by the temporal component, there's also the lack of perfect information in biology itself. One of the things about biology is that we only observe a small part of what's going on. And from that, we, we want to look out over everything that is consistent with the part that we observe and say, what is, of all the things that we can imagine that are consistent with the part that we observe, what is most likely given the measurements that we have made? So that's why I view it as a combinatorial optimization program. Or in other words, she created a bunch of possible gene regulatory networks using the information that was available, and then narrowed those down to the ones that are most likely to be close to the biological reality. And those are the ones that she used for her work. If network number one is the most likely, what would that predict? If network number two is the second to most likely, what would that predict? And then go and see which of these predictions turns out to be true. This leaves us with the question of how Jennifer built up these gene regulatory network models. It started, as it usually does, with observation. For example, an observation that during some cellular process, there is a collection of 30 proteins, which seem to be much more or much less active than they usually are. This would seem to imply they should be nodes in the network. Except there is a small problem. We also know that these 30 proteins don't interact directly with each other. So there must be intermediate ones which are mediating this. So how do we find those intermediate ones which are mediating this? So then Jennifer went back to observation and looked at the other proteins that are floating about. How many of these are known to interact with those 30? And of the ones that seem to interact strongly with those 30, how many other proteins interact with those that interact strongly with the 30? And from this, we start to build up a possible network that could be the real underlying network with the mediating proteins that we're not seeing directly, but that emerge when we consider all possible subnetworks that might be consistent with what we observe. To build this collection of all possible subnetworks, Jennifer used an approach that leveraged work regarding Steiner trees. 
You can think of Steiner trees as subgraphs of a network which connect up specific nodes with minimal cost. In this case, the specific nodes are the 30 proteins that we know are a part of the protein cascade. And the cost? Well, that relates to the probability that any two given proteins interact with each other. So after identifying all of these protein Steiner trees, Jennifer and her collaborators used them to build their complete gene regulatory network models. For their first test, they tried out this technique on something that's rather integral to my enjoyment of life. At least from a taste perspective, that is. Yeast. So one of the reasons that we looked at yeast is because there's so much data on it. The data is all publicly available, very well studied. So when we came up with this idea of applying the Steiner tree and our new algorithms for the Steiner tree to biology, yeast was a very natural one to look at. We were able to find the data. And then using that data, we were able to make predictions about what proteins that were not known to participate in the pheromone response pathway, which is what we were looking at, might actually be operative, might actually be important there. So we took this data that we could find online, we did the analysis, and then we had a prediction. But when you have a prediction, you know, you need to test that prediction. And, you, and in biology, you need to test it experimentally. So we had to find biologists who were actually willing to believe us enough <laughs> to go and do the test. Uh, and, and so you went in to these biologists, you said, we're pretty sure that this protein or gene is, is involved in this pathway, even though no, no one else necessarily thinks that. And so you had them run the test. And what did the test observe? The test observed that when they knocked out that gene, that response pathway fell apart, which is, you know, which really said that it was involved, um, you know, which is very exciting to us because it was kind of experimental proof. I'm used to doing mathematical proofs. This was experimental proof um, that what we were doing was actually saying something about the biology. Now that they had their experimental proof, it was time to tackle something a bit bigger than yeast, specifically a type of brain cancer called glioblastoma. This was not any random choice either. Given how serious the disease is and that most people who are diagnosed um, have to go into a lot of treatment, um, we actually have a lot of information on glioblastoma. The people who have it, the people who have this brain cancer, you know, uh, usually are operated on. So they actually take a tumor out of the brain and they can study that tumor. And the people are really closely monitored. So we, we know a lot about it. They then took all of this information and used it to do the same thing they had previously done with yeast. They used Steiner trees to model the gene regulatory network and tried to determine the pathways related to glioblastoma's development. So when we looked at the glioblastoma pathway that emerges from the Steiner tree problem, it has many parts to it which make a lot of sense to any biologist, certainly to any oncologist, because they're pieces of the pathway which they see operating in many cancers. Okay, DNA damage repair is not done properly, or P57, which is operative and dysfunction of which is operative in many cancers. 
so the question was, what are the parts of this network that we found which are not already known? What are the things that are going wrong just in glioblastoma? And so that was what we focused on. And with the help of collaborators at MIT's Frankel Lab, they did find something. Really surprisingly, there was a, a central node in this network that emerged that didn't seem to make a lot of sense that nobody had ever implicated in glioblastoma before, and that was the estrogen receptor, you know, which just seems like a weird thing. But of course, an estrogen receptor is going to have a very different role in men than in women. So it was kind of very exciting to see this because it was the first pathway link between glioblastoma and gender. The reason a connection between glioblastoma and gender is so exciting is because glioblastoma is significantly more likely to affect genotypic males than females. There's also experimental evidence that estrogen could potentially affect glioblastoma. Well, I'm not sure how to get estrogen into the brain, but in vitro, not in vivo, if you have glioblastoma cells and you put in um, a certain kind of inhibitor for something called EGFR, which is a receptor, a membrane receptor, with or without estrogen, with estrogen, the cells die much more quickly. The glioblastoma cells die much more quickly. So estrogen does seem to have an effect in the form of estradiol, a particular kind of estrogen, does seem to have a negative effect on glioblastoma. If estrogen has a negative effect, it makes some sense. You know, uh, women have a lot more estrogen floating around in them than men do. And although it's not clear how estrogen would get to the brain, uh, we don't understand fully how glioblastoma operates anyway. We see it in the brain, but we're not sure how it operates. But this is, is promising because it means that the estrogen receptor, maybe estrogen itself, could be a target. This work didn't stop here. Not satisfied by just looking at a specific type of cancer, Jennifer and her collaborators decided to branch out and look at patients too. For the patient-specific work, we were looking at breast cancer. We were using what's called the Cancer Genome Atlas, TCGA, which is multi-institutional data set for about 20 different kinds of cancer. The NIH encouraged different institutions to get together and pool their cancer data on about 20 different kinds of cancer. So in looking at TCGA for breast cancer, we were looking at breast cancer patients from many, many different hospitals, many institutions. They're very large data sets, and they allow much more detailed analyses. As you've already determined, I'm totally sure, they once again used the Steiner tree method to determine probable pathways related to each patient's cancer. They then did something different and quite interesting. They used this information to cluster patients. As we know, in breast cancer, for example, there are some patients where tamoxifen helps a great deal, and there are others for whom it doesn't help. Those are probably different cancers. And we, you know, we don't have that many tries to get the treatment right before cancer metastasizes. So it's very important to understand that there are these different clusters. So this allowed us to really hone the treatment, the patient-specific treatment for each cluster. For me, this seems like it could well be the most important part of all of this. 
Until we're truly able to determine which type of cancer someone has, we will not be able to treat them in the most effective possible way. Years from now, we are not going to believe that we talked about breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, because each of these is multiple diseases, and there is not only one treatment. There are many treatments, and it's very important to to get the first-line treatment to be the right one for your particular kind of cancer. That is a future I definitely hope that I get a chance to live in. But in the present, we do have many different ways that we're currently trying to battle cancer, such as surgery, radiation, chemo. I want to bring our attention now to one that you might not know about, vaccines. So cancer vaccines are a type of immunotherapy. So these are therapies that try to boost the body's own immune response to cancer. That is Amy Radinskaya, professor of mathematics at Pomona College in Claremont, California. We know there is some immune response, but and we believe that all the time we probably have little tiny tumors that our immune system is getting rid of. And then when we actually detect cancers, probably because that tumor escaped the immune surveillance. So a vaccine tries to stimulate the body's response to tumors. The big difference between cancer vaccines and the vaccines which pop into your head when you hear the word, like, say, the measles vaccine, is that cancer vaccines are used as a therapy instead of as a preventative measure. That's because, as Jennifer mentioned earlier, there is no one singular cancer. So these immune therapies have to be much more flexible. The vaccines take two forms, allogenic, which are made from cells which are not your own and indirectly stimulate the immune system, and autologous, which are made from your own cells and which Amy says currently hold the most promise. And it's a very intriguing promise indeed, as these vaccines generally carry very few side effects, should provide lasting protection against cancers in a way that radiation or chemo are unable to match, as well as having the ability to target cancers which can't be operated on. But, as with any treatment, there are problems. One of the challenges that they're having in the development of cancer vaccines is that the immune system is very, very complicated, number one. And number two, that cancer is not highly immunogenic, meaning it doesn't really send up a big signal to your immune system, unlike, say, viruses or something. You get a virus you feel your lymph nodes or, you know, your immune cells are growing like crazy. Cancer cells, not so much. Why not? Because they are your own cells. We're not, you know, we don't want to be attacking our own cells. So it's, it's tricky to get a really strong immune response. Add on top of that, the varied ways individuals' immune systems respond, and of course, keeping in mind, once again, that each cancer is also rather individual, and you start to get a pretty big problem for these vaccines. A problem which is put into stark relief when you start to think about how to put these vaccines into use. If every cancer is different and every immune response is different, what possible protocol can be developed to administer these vaccines so that they're actually useful? That's where I really think mathematical modeling can can help. Because if we have a model, what's a mathematical model? It's just a bunch of equations that will describe the process you're interested in understanding. Always, almost always, you know, much simpler than the actual process. If it were much simpler, it wouldn't be much good. 
it's not like we're trying to reproduce, you know, have a, a virtual human or something, but we're actually sort of trying to have a virtual schematic of what's going on and what we're interested in. And then if we believe in that model enough to, to believe the sort of macro scale results, we can then test things on that model quickly, safely, cheaply. And then if I could say tune my model to you, your patient with certain parameters, we could then say, okay, this is the vaccine for you with this scheduling and these doses. Are there now a lot of different cancer vaccines out there? Yeah, there are quite a few undergoing clinical trials at the moment, probably, you know, 50 or so and different types. And it depends what you call a vaccine because, you know, and for different types of cancer, for melanoma, for glioma, for prostate cancer, for breast cancer, it's it's really the, the kind of the one of the biggest discoveries of the past few years. And it's these trials which add yet another sticky issue into the mix. I've been rather strongly hammering away at just how individualized everything about this treatment is. But when you do clinical trials, the Food and Drug Administration, known more colloquially as the FDA or as the agency which governs all drug trials, they require that the people running the trials specify the protocol, the how much, the how often, and the how and where administered of the drug ahead of time. For something as individualized as these vaccines, this is, of course, an issue. An issue people are talking about. Important people, such as the ones who were at a workshop at the National Cancer Institute that Amy attended. Few mathematicians, clinicians, lab people, they're together to say, okay, we know there are these issues now of timing, of how can we, how can we be convincing to the FDA <laughs> that these you know, new ways of looking at things will work. And I think that is the challenge right now because it's not the standard way of, of doing things. Like even you know when you get medicine, they maybe know by your weight, they say, well, take one pill or half a pill. It's very, you know, low-resolution individualization, I would say. And, and a lot of times it's probably not quite the right dose, but it doesn't matter so much, right? But apparently with this kind of therapy, it is very much, does very much matter. And it makes sense, right? Because we're, you know, you're, you're messing with an ongoing operating machine that's very, very well-tuned to do what it does. Since getting these protocols right is so important, how are people going about it? Actually, that might be too big of a question. How about instead, we just focus on how they're getting it right for the vaccine in particular that Amy was working with. What I looked at <clears throat> were maximizing the number of what we call cytotoxic T cells. So cytotoxic killing cells. T cells are types of immune cells from the thymus, T for thymus, that we develop in response to a particular challenge. So um, I tried maximizing the number of these T cells after a, a certain point or over a certain amount of time. I also tried maximizing the number of memory cells. So memory cells are immune cells that are there waiting for the next attack. Now, in cancer, that's probably quite important because, right, we believe that we have these recurring challenges. So 
maybe that's the most important. And then I also tried a, a sort of weighted average of those two, maybe, you know, maximize both. And by using her model and a genetic algorithm approach, which went through a bunch of scenarios in a way that each one was a little bit better than the last, essentially evolving toward the optimal. They determined that the best timing for the second dose of their vaccine in order to maximize these T-cells and memory cells was three days, which is a rather large difference than the protocol rate of two weeks, which was the timing that was used in the vaccine's trial. Of course, rate is only one part of the protocol. There's also the question of where to administer the vaccine. Of course, if you ask me, there does seem to be one rather clear choice for that. Many people think injecting these vaccines into the tumor is the right place. However, if you think about it, you know, a lot the immune system is a is a big dynamic thing and a lot of the action there happens not at the site of the tumor but in the lymph organs, you know, where these Immune cells are activated, begin to proliferate, and then go out and attack things. So you might say we should inject into the lymph organ, you know, the, maybe the lymph node closest to the tumor, maybe the, the spleen, which is sort of our major lymph organ. And then the, the, the other place people often inject is just the bloodstream because the blood is like the highway, you know. We'll put it in the highway and they'll know where to go. And so, in fact, according to our model, injecting in the blood was the better route, even though the number of immune cells in the tumor wasn't raised, but the sort of the number of effective ones at the right time, I guess. It's a bit mysterious still. Mysterious or not, that's two results stemming from mathematical models relating to cancer vaccines, which seemed to offer a possible way of making this exciting form of immunotherapy more viable. To me, this would seem to make the case we should at least be looking at the possibility of trying to see where in medicine we might benefit from using modeling to help out instead of just relying on doctors, well, doctoring. That's not to say... I don't strongly believe in doctors' ability to doctor. I just saw one this morning, as a matter of fact, and given the choice between a doctor's opinion on what I should do and a model's, I'm going to take the doctor's opinion 100% of the time. Unless that opinion is that I needed to stop podcasting, then, well, quite frankly, they can go to hell. I'm not going to stop, no matter what. It's just that no one is perfect. No one knows everything. Not a doctor and certainly not a mathematician. We've even made a proof that shows that. And maybe a world where we get a blend of modeling and doctoring could be better. Of course, the sense that I need to qualify all of this so strongly is probably pretty good evidence of the gulf that currently exists between mathematicians and doctors. So I would say that we are still a long way from being very convincing to to doctors. Why? Because I I do talk to a lot of doctors, and they have years of experience, and they're very smart, and they know a lot of things, but they know it in this kind of organic way. And when they see some equations, 
that purports to describe the human body, they just cannot believe it. And the fact, they're right, that it doesn't really describe the human body. It's a very little small piece of it, but we believe it's useful. Someone said, you know, all models are bad, but some are useful. <laughs> and I think that's true. So that clearly leaves us with one thing to do. It's just, how can we convince doctors that these models can be useful? You know, one, one question might be, well, why don't more mathematicians work on this kind of thing and more medical people work together with and and I think that that is something that needs to happen and if you you know I'm a, a professor in a university and I see what happens students come to school and they say I do math or I don't do math I do biology <laughs> and I think we need to change that culture right away and say you know you don't do math to the exclusion of other things. We do mathematics with a, a lot of other disciplines, just like we write about a lot of things, right? Or we, we make images of a lot of things. So I think that there's something about our culture that we need to gradually change. There you go. There is your simple action item from this episode. Go out and change the culture of doing your discipline, be it mathematics or medicine or chemistry or psychology, to the exclusion of all others. And if that seems like too big of a task, I know I can already feel the weight of it myself. How about just reaching out to someone, anyone outside of your area, and talking to them about your work, and then asking them about theirs. And hopefully, you can find some middle ground where y'all can work together. No pressure, but the next breakthrough in treating cancer might just be at stake. But now, now I have to say goodbye. Because I'm going to go ring up an anthropologist friend, and see how our work might just be able to become more than the sum of its parts. And that is all the time that we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. I want to thank again Jennifer Shays and Amy Radinskaya for sharing their work with us this week, as well as to the American Mathematical Society and Mathematical Association of America for the joint mathematics meetings where these interviews were recorded. I also want to give a huge shout out to all of the patrons who support Relatively Prime on Patreon. This show could not, would not, survive to this day without your generosity. And if you want to join them and help support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash relprime or head on over to relprime.com and just hit the button on the top that says support. And you can, you know, give a little bit of money to me so that I can, you know, maintain making this show and bring more wonderful mathematical stories into the world. I also want to thank, as I do quite often these days, Lowercase N for the use of their music for the intro and the outro on the show today. I've really been loving working with their music. It is so good, and you should definitely go over to Bandcamp and search Lowercase N and listen to their music. It's truly, truly fantastic. And as always... 
this is a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike licensed show. So if you want to use it, good. Feel free. Please use this content. Just make sure that you give Relatively Prime the credit. And finally, I would really, really love for you to please give us an iTunes review. It really is the biggest driver for getting new people to see and to listen to this show. So I've decided to make it a little bit of a game. I want everyone to go to iTunes and leave a review that exclusively consists of your favorite mathematical equation. That's it. Just go in there, click on however many stars, five, of course, however many, five, there's definitely worth five stars, however many stars you think Relatively Prime deserves, and then post in the actual review part, just your favorite equation. And that's all. That's, I would love to see a bunch of those. And if you do it, I will thank you on the next episode. I promise. So please go do this. It will be so much fun. Especially, it'll be just so much fun to go into iTunes and just read a ton of everyone's favorite equations. And who knows? Maybe one of the equations will be so cool, I'll do an episode about it. And if so, you can hear it sometime soon on this show, which is saying goodbye to you right now. Relatively prime. Stories from the mathematical domain. Thanks for listening, y'all. Have a mathorific week.